I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of God's wrath. I remember my affliction and my wandering. The bitterness and the gall, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Welcome to the Broken Book Podcast. We're your hosts, Amanda and Sam. And we're ready again this week to appreciate, dissect, criticize, defend, and generally nerd out about the Bible. Welcome to our first mailbag episode. I cannot tell you how excited I was last night when I saw all of the questions uh, that Sam sent me that he's been curating through all of our interactions with you guys, through email, through Twitter, through Facebook. We have the best listeners who send us the best questions. This is so great. Please keep sending in questions and comments and ideas. And if you do, we'll do another one of these mailbag episodes. I'm psyched. All right. So what's the first question, Sam? What is your favorite and least favorite book of the Bible? Mm. Yes, that is a question that we would get asked on this podcast. It's relevant. So I think before my faith reconstruction, my answer probably would have been John. Um, I just had a really great experience reading the book of John. My youth group um, at one point gave us all like little books that were just just contained the gospel of john and it like really made me fall in love with the gospel of john um but after my reconstruction when we like first started this podcast i think i would have said ecclesiastes because ecclesiastes pretty much calls out a lot of the crappy stuff that religious people say like oh like everything happens for a reason uh which i was pretty angry with at that point in time because Ecclesiastes is like, um, actually everything is meaningless, uh, which was pretty, pretty comforting to me at that time. Now, I would not say that Ecclesiastes is my favorite book of the Bible because I feel like I've gotten, gotten back to a place where I've been able to like reclaim and reinterpret a lot of biblical books. And I'm right now I'm reading, I'm starting to read Matthew. And it's so cool because all of the mythology around Jesus's birth makes so much sense to me now. And it's like really, really interesting. And I'm like comparing it to all this other stuff from the Old Testament. And I'm really excited about it. So it's really tempting to pick Matthew. But I think ultimately right now I would say Genesis. uh, Because it just seems like as we have been discussing various books of the Bible we keep coming back to Genesis as having this really healthy, much, much more healthy view of God than in a lot of other books. And just like a much more personal God and a God who is allowed to sort of make mistakes and a God that you can wrestle with and a God who knows how to forgive and not just how to punish. So that is my answer for now. How about you, Sam? What's your favorite book of the Bible? I've been really struggling and welcoming the book of Hebrews lately. Mm. Why Hebrews? Hebrews takes the ultra-powerful, ultra-transcendent God that used to only be accessible to the priests, and it brings us straight into our hearts. It's such a deconstruction of the old systems. 
It breaks down the dividing line between God and humanity. And I think it's the clearest and most profound presentation of the incarnation in scripture. Nice. All right, next so, question. least favorite. Oh, least. Wait, are we doing least favorite? Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah. Least favorite. Oh, no. Um, I think it's Nehemiah. Not, I think Ezra I'm more okay with, but Nehemiah is just obnoxious. Because Nehemiah is the one. So this is um, after the exile, Jews come back to Jerusalem and are trying to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And Nehemiah is like this guy who's trying to like lead this effort which is fine all fine except that all throughout the book nehemiah is just like remember me god because i did all this good stuff and i'm the best person and remember me god because i did all this awesome stuff and it's like i don't know it just it gets really tiresome after a while especially when some of the things that he's like really proud of are like Hey, everybody, you're not allowed to intermarry with people who aren't Jews. So anyone who married a Jew, send your wife and children away. It's like, ah, remember me, God, because I did all this stuff for you. No, ah, gross. Ah, Nehemiah. I'm going to go with Titus. I don't think I've ever had an original thought or spiritual experience of that book. I don't think that text has impacted me in any way. <laughs> I read it, it goes in one ear, out the other, except you don't actually listen when you're reading, but you get the idea. Yeah, yeah. I've never heard a good sermon about it. None of my teachers have ever wanted to focus on it. It's a book that's in the Bible and then disappears. Mm. And that's probably because First and Second Timothy are kind of expansions of Titus, and First and Second Timothy are both darker and more complex versions of the argument so titus is just there i mean can you think of anything to say about titus no no i all i remember is that yeah it's sort of vaguely similar to like the timothy's i guess it's there i know it is that there. it's there Titus is a cool it's a cool sounding name it is <laughs> and what but what trait would be worse in a book of the bible than to be unmemorable that's a travesty. I mean, there are a number of books of the Bible that seem unmemorable to me, including Gasp, the Minor Prophets. They all have such personality. How can you ever forget about Nahum or Obadiah, Zechariah? I have a Haggai. hard time keeping them apart, honestly. <laughs> it's, I probably shouldn't, but it's true. The Minor Prophets and the uh, the Minor Epistles. Always, always tricky to remember. I'll admit that I don't really actually like Obadiah very much either. Which one is that again? Oh, that's the one that's against... That Edom. Against Edom. Anti-Edom. Right, the anti-Edom one. Yeah. And that's it. It's just one paragraph talking about how this one group deserves to die. Hmm. That's so nice. Especially after, like, Esau was the nice one. <clears throat> okay. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. Yes, yes. Next question. What would you ask... The historical Jesus, if you had the chance. I am so scared of the historical Jesus. Yeah? Because so much of my faith is built around the combination of history and myth and philosophy. I need Jesus to coexist in between what is real and what is mystical. And I need Jesus to always inhabit that liminal space 
For example, I never, ever, ever, ever want to know whether the resurrection happened or not. <laughs> there is so much theological value to thinking that it's real. And there is so much theological value to see it as metaphorical. And you lose so much if we get the objective answer. So if I meet the historical Jesus, I'm staying away from cosmic subjects. I'm not going to be talking about the nature of his soul or the nature of his calling. Because I have a much more selfish question to ask. I want to know why Jesus loves me. Mm. Because the Bible always talks about the incredible love of Jesus. And the incredible heart of Jesus is this theme throughout the mysticism of all of Christian history. But then you go to the Gospels and look at Jesus speaking. And you don't see Jesus saying good stuff about people. We know that Jesus is very loving, but he never gives us a love letter. We see God in the Old Testament lavishing praise and love occasionally on their people. But Jesus never takes a chance to look at all the humans surrounding him and say why they're so precious. He says that they are precious, more valuable than so much. But why, Jesus, why do you love me? What is it about me? What is it about humans that makes you want to do the things you do, that makes you want to bless the world or even give your life for the world. I guess maybe just because Jesus is the most important person in my life. Jesus is the person who loves me the most. And I need reassurance. I need that love letter. That's a really good answer. And honestly, I get pissed off at how often Jesus talks about my sins. Can't Jesus, can't you notice my smile sometimes or something? The Gospels are too dark. What would you ask the historical Jesus? Part of me does want to know whether the historical Jesus rose from the dead or not. And would really want to ask if I had the opportunity. Um, part of me says that that's a terrible waste of this question. <laughs> I really want to know the answer to that. And also, it doesn't matter nearly enough. For that to be the question that I would ask the historical Jesus if I actually had the opportunity to meet him in person. Too minor a question? Definitely. Definitely. Ah, I don't think I'd want to ask him anything if I had the opportunity to meet him. I think I would just want to, like, be with Jesus if I had the opportunity to be with Jesus. Like, I have, it's it's weird, like, I have such an emotional connection to this person who is actually a real person in a real place at a real time that I, I don't think I'd, ah, it's hard to, it's hard to be like, yeah, if I got to meet Jesus, what I'd want to do is ask him a question. Not really. Um, and honestly, as I was thinking about this question, I was like, I think it would be really weird with all of the privilege that I live with to interact with the historical Jesus. You know, I have air conditioning, which is a luxury that Caesar never had. I am this really wealthy white woman. I mean, in in the course of history, like, just unbelievably privileged person. And then to, like have this interaction with the historical Jesus who was part of this like oppressed people group and who was not, you know, whose parents were extremely poor when he was growing up. I don't know. It, 
it just like it's it's weird. There's a part of me that says that Jesus Jesus shouldn't have to make time for me. Isn't it so privileged to be like, "Hey Jesus, you should spend time with me." The the thing that is like comforting to me in that is, you know, Jesus is reported to have spent time with the poorest of poor and also with the rich in his day. And so maybe maybe it actually wouldn't matter. Maybe it actually wouldn't be awkward yeah. because Jesus is just epic at transcending uh those sorts of barriers do you find yourself overly privileged when you try praying jesus or god i have not tried to pray to jesus in an extremely long time god god is a bit different uh praying to jesus though that's a it's a little bit weird it's a little bit like the tension of like you know when we talk about trying to unlearn some of our some of our racism, some of our white supremacy, there's, like, this tension of, like, you need to be friends with black people. And also, like, you shouldn't impinge on black people. They already have enough going on that they're dealing with. Like, they don't need to be friends with you in addition to everything else that's going on with them. Sort of, sort of thing. I think part of me is scared that the historical Jesus will be disappointing. That's what it sounded like from your, from your answer. I'm scared that the historical Jesus might be too gruff or angry or mm. imperfect. And we know just enough about the historical Jesus that we can really like him. Mm-hmm. That he seems really awesome, like he's really speaking a prophetic message. But I'm sure there are things about the historical Jesus that are incredibly grating. And he seems like he's very likely a very bitter person. And I don't want to know that. I want to let the mystery be to an extent. So I guess if I had to ask him a question, maybe the best thing is just to ask for a hug. That's sort of what the point that I came to, too. I think I think what would be transformative about meeting the historical Jesus would be meeting the historical Jesus, not getting a question answered by the historical Jesus. I don't I don't know. I think I think your question like really hits home for me as well, honestly, Sam, in terms of like I think my real question would be like would basically be answered if the his- if the historical Jesus decided to take the time to spend with me. I think that would already answer my question. That's so true. I guess I just kind of want him to notice me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, speaking of kind of awkward interactions with God, let's move on to our next question. Do you know anything about Song of Songs? I've heard some interpret it as a metaphor about the relationship between Yahweh and Israel, but that seems strange. I wouldn't say that I'm an expert on Song of Songs, though, but what I what I think I know more about is about the historical church's relationship with sexuality. <laughs> and I think that may be a little bit more relevant to your question here. The historical church has had this really big problem with separating the soul from the body and like the soul is good and the body is sort of icky and bad and this is the root of a lot of problems around sex and sexuality in our culture and so i think i'm not saying that song of songs can't also be a metaphor about the relationship between yahweh and israel i think that's great and fine but i think that people focus on that because they're uncomfortable with the fact that there is a book in the Bible that is about sex 
between two human beings. And I think we just, as Christians, really need to get over that and need to be okay with the fact that there's a book in the Bible that's about having sex. And it's great. And it's allowed to be in the Bible. And it's allowed to be about sex. What do you think, Sam? It's where people talk about Song of Songs in the abstract a lot, but they don't usually talk about the details. Song of Songs is a very bizarre way to be sexy. For example, it's all about geographic locations. Like every four or five words is like Lebanon or Jerusalem or Israel or this mountain or that <laughs> mountain. So I'm picturing in the ancient Near East, like people are watching geography porn. So like if you're flirting with someone, you're like... Your fingers are like Baltimore. Your breasts are like the Appalachian Mountains. Your neck is like the the Twin Towers. Oh, <laughs> Maybe <dark>. not. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he went there. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Your neck is like the Empire State Building. That's that better. That's better. Whoops. Um, your boobs are like the Rockies. It seems like what's incredibly sexy back then is a notion of eating people like fruit. Um, so when sex is described, it's basically the process of smelling something than eating something. I mean, people talk about sex that way now, too. Yeah. And I think that adds a great dimension to the communion experience, is if divine eroticism is eating something, then, well, there is an erotic element, a sexual element to eating Jesus. Hmm. No, I will climb the breadfruit tree and I will I will tear the bread and eat it. Like that? Yeah. Hot stuff. The Song of Songs is an extremely abstract poem where people are constantly switching locations, almost like they're teleporting from one place to another place. There are two separate dream sequences where the two are about to have sex and then they realize they're just sleeping and can't have sex. They're also constantly chasing after each other and are rarely in the same location. It is not just a poem about sex. It's more a poem about longing for sex and the building tension and tension and tension until the the poem kind of arrives at the orgasm towards the end of the text. Um, weirdly, there's an account of police brutality in the text. Um, the woman is assaulted by a police officer. I think we like focusing so much on the fact that there's a sex book in the Bible that a lot of people haven't spent enough time deconstructing the narrative of that book hmm. because it is impossibly complex. I once read it through about four or five times just trying to figure out what the plot is, and I couldn't do it. If I just saw that text without knowing it was in the Bible, I would think it was from the early 20th century from some radical Dadaist or postmodern group because it is extremely dreamlike. And extremely complicated. Yeah, I agree. I've never heard anyone, except for like a few verses here or there where they're like, oh, like the verse about love is stronger than death. Like everyone likes that verse or like there's a couple other verses that people will like cherry pick out of there. But I, I've never heard real significant analysis of the majority of any of the passages. And I've certainly never seen someone try to find theological significance behind the narrative of Song of Songs. Um, and there's mm. some cultural elements which are just very confusing. Yeah, like, it's just, it's very weird when it's like, oh, your teeth, they're like a row of sheep. And we're just like, 
I've never, I don't even have any experience with sheep. And why would you want your teeth to be like sheep? That's really weird. The woman seems to have a very weird relationship with her family. Yeah, that too. And it all has to do with something about vineyard ownership that deals with very abstract real estate law, which I just don't understand. And also her family seems to reject Solomon because Solomon isn't one of her brothers. And it definitely feels like the poem was written into a time frame when incest wasn't just acceptable, but actually encouraged where people would often marry their half-brothers or half-sisters. Uh, so it just, the context is so weird in Song of Songs that the real meaning is lost, except for the fact that it's clearly very sexy and very geographic and very fruity. Uh <laughs> As far as the concept of associating it with a relationship between God and Israel or God and the church, I am totally fine with that. I think that's an excellent interpretation and it's a needed interpretation because sex is all over the Bible. In particular, sex with God is this is a metaphor used constantly by the prophets is that Israel is God's wife and then later the ladies of the church are Jesus's wife. The ladies of the church? Everyone in the church is Jesus's wife. Well, I'm talking of like the brides of Christ, the bride ladies. Oh, okay, the um, brides of... But it's there's also just the bride of Christ. There's singular bride of Christ there also. Is. Yes. And we've tried to make the love of God unsexual. But when we do that, we are fighting against the biblical text. For example, we have pretended to interpret the word agape as only meaning spiritual love when that is not the original Greek context. Originally, the word agape often had a very sexual connotation. And the word ero eros, erotic, often had a very spiritual connotation. Yeah, we've tried to make it really like cut and dry. Like, there's God's love, which is not sexual at all. And then there's sexual love over here, far away from God. I think the reason for it is simple. I think it's homophobia. We have traditionally conceived of God as male, and we are a patriarchy, and patriarchies in a homophobic society don't want to have sex with a male God. That That's fairly convincing. I think if we had a female conception of God, that we'd have a much sexier religion. Oh, that's definitely true. That's definitely true. I totally agree. There would have been all there'd be all this like male gaze stuff on our god if she if God was thought to be female. Have you seen the ancient Greek statues of the goddesses? <laughs> yeah. That's male gazy. Yeah, it is. And even in a patriarchy, homophobic patriarchy, we still have an incredibly hunky conception of Jesus. I mean our central image is this dude in a loincloth with abs stretched out. And that's good, because we need more of that. We need more sexy Jesus. We need more Jesus as our boyfriend. Because we have lost so much of the sexuality and sensuality that is in the text. Now, there are moments in history where the sexuality of Christianity has been rediscovered. Especially in the mystic traditions of the Middle Ages. For example, Catherine of Siena got married to Jesus and had an invisible wedding ring made out of Jesus' foreskin. Oh, wow. She went there. She went there. She did that. She went through several days of incredible divine ecstasy where she wrote 
a great dialogue of God, which is still considered one of the great works of Catholic literature. Catherine of Siena is just so awesome. I have a massive crush on her. She's amazing. Look her up. And I think the sexuality of God is really important because it's really, really affirming to people, especially to lonely people or people who don't have access to other people. People who, when you kind of think, no one wants to have sex with me, that is incorrect. God wants to have sex with you. And that is such a beautiful thought. Let's, that makes me uncomfortable, mainly, okay, that makes me uncomfortable. And the thing that makes me the most uncomfortable about that is that we also see God as a parental figure. And that is, that is creepy when those things get mixed together. And yeah, like I agree with you. And also my brain is like caution. Well, that's the weird thing about God is God is simultaneously the parent and the child. Mm. So have sex with Jesus? Yeah. But not with God. I mean, not not with God. Not with your father. Or mother. Or parent. Or mother. Or parent. I think we have to also now just accept a fundamental nature of marriage and sexuality and relationships is that our lover is a new parent to us, is a caregiver, Mm. is someone who helps create us, and someone we have families with. Um, Right, right. And then oftentimes... And that part of what we're looking for in a a partner is someone who reminds us of the type of care that we got from our parents. And we become, sometimes become parents ourselves. Not that that's the only reason to have sex or relationships, but... The line between parent and lover is a very, very thin line. And the line between the father and the son in traditional Orthodox Christianity is also a very, very thin line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, it is a thin line, and also it's a line that's important to keep on the, on the to, to, to have in the right spot. And our culture sometimes has problems with that, so that's probably part of why it sounds creepy. And it is creepy, often in the Old Testament, where you have God as kind of seducing his ward into marrying him. So in Ezekiel, God raises Israel from when she was a little child in order to marry her. And that definitely has a predatory angle to it. Yeah, no kidding. Much of the book of Ezekiel seems to have a predatory angle to it, so. Yeah. Cool. Well... If you could become friends with someone from the Bible or a biblical author, who would it be and what would your friendship look like? I want to befriend the minor prophets and the major prophets. Of course you do. In particular, the ones who are really into performance art. I want to get to know Isaiah and Hosea and the other people who are doing crazy things, who are stripping out naked and playing with toys and yelling at people in the streets. I want to know the crazy prophets. And the reason is because I am neuroatypical, and I'm someone who wants a life and career in ministry. Mm. And nowadays, ministry has become this bastion of respectability. We want the people who are leaders in the church to be the upright citizens, the ones who don't Mm -hmm. swear, who don't smoke, who don't drink, who are nice and kind always. We have this image of the pastor as Saint? The respectable one. Yeah. 
whereas in the ancient days, you have all these important religious leaders who are nutso in a beautiful way. Yeah. As someone who's neuroatypical, I can never be respectable in a traditional way. I will never be able to match our society's conception of what a minister should look like. So I want to go into the margins and find how these old prophets use their neuroatypical energy to make awesome points. How to be someone standing on a pillar rather than just someone at a pulpit. That's awesome. How to use shock value and nudity and weirdness to share the truth. I think you would have a lot of fun with that. I think I would get too into it. (laughs) Yeah, probably. And come back and be like, Ezekiel said this would be a really great idea. (laughs) And we'd be like, no, Sam, don't do that. I really need to keep my clothes on in church. That's just good health self-care practice. For all, yes. Agreed. Please do that. I will. So who, if you could be friends with someone from the Bible or biblical author, who would it be? Hmm. Um, off the top of my head, I think I would want to be friends either with the author of Ruth or with the author of Jonah. Because, sorry? I just said oof, good choices. Yes, yes. Uh, I love the movement after, so after Jews came back out of the exile back into Israel, there was this movement of like, okay, we have to actually follow the law guys now, guys, because the reason that we got exiled was because we weren't following it right. And there's definitely an extent to which this was good, particularly the parts of the law that were very like, you know, toward caring about poor people and those sorts of things. But there, there was also an element to this of exclusion, which was, you know, Jewish people can't get married to people who aren't Jewish and, like, we need to, like, be separate from the rest of the world and we need to, you know, exclude anyone who isn't like us, basically. And the brilliant thing about Ruth and about Jonah is they take all this old story and they, like, turn it on its head and they're like, no, you don't get it. God is all about welcoming in the stranger. You know, you think that Jewish people are pure and so, like, King David must be the purest Jewish person ever because he was, like, the best king ever. Well, guess what? His grandma was totally not Jewish. And here's the story of how it happened. And she was awesome. And the guy who married her was super awesome and super faithful to God. So there, in your face. With Jonah, you know, very understandably, there is a tendency to have extremely strong hatred toward a people who oppressed you. Which is totally healthy, normal response. And God still loves those people. Like, people do horrible things, and it's totally healthy to, like, be angry with them. And God wants everyone to flourish. Yeah, I just, I love the sneaky 
ways that the authors of Ruth and the authors of Jonah managed to like get their message across so strongly and so in your face but also yeah through this really beautiful story that pulls from their own history and their own culture those authors are great examples of positive progressive deconstructive faith yes Yes. So yeah, I want to be friends with them because I want to do what they did. And I like want to learn how to do that because it's awesome. Job, also the writer of Job, those those sorts of books. I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of God's wrath. I remember my affliction and my wandering. The bitterness and the gall, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Why should the living complain when punished for their sins? Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, We have sinned and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain without pity. You have covered yourself with clouds that no prayer can get through. You have made a scum and refuse among the nations. All our enemies have opened their mouths wide against us. We have suffered terror and pitfalls, ruin and destruction. Streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. My eyes will flow unceasingly without relief until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees.